0: I would like for you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Walter made a comment a few weeks ago when he came back to Habakkuk that we'd had a couple of weeks away from that and said that people had cried out, how long, how long before we get back to Habakkuk? Nobody's cried that out about Nehemiah, how long, how long. Maybe because Nehemiah's been dead for so well, of course Habakkuk has too, Nehemiah still has a message like Habakkuk does that lives on and still relevant, still practical, and still useful in the lives of God's people today. And so as I've been going through the book of Nehemiah for the last few months, off and on, I'd like to get back because I want to finish that this year. It's very, very important. It's a book of revival. It's a book of commitment. It's a book, well, it's a book God's people need to read and to have reinforced their lives on a regular basis, not just occasionally. Before we do that, before we get back into the book, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, you are such an incredible God. Our God is an awesome God, we sang. And Father, we didn't just sing that to sing it. We sing it because we believe that. What an incredible God you are to love us the way you do to give us so many incredible things and to want to spend eternity with us as your children. Very humbly, Father, we bow before you and ask you to guide us through this lesson that we may come to a better understanding of our relationship with you, that we may come to a better understanding of what you expect of us. And may we respond, Father, as they did, so long ago people who want to confess to you where we've been wrong people who want to recommit ourselves to you so that we may be pleasing in your sight people who want to serve you until we breathe the last breath of our lives in this world Father bless our study move our hearts keep your word planted within us make us more like Jesus Christ Father and I ask it in his name. Amen. I wrestled with the title for the lesson. I originally was going to call it uh, A Declaration of Distinction because it talks about the distinction God's people are supposed to have. And I thought, well, A Declaration of Dependence because it also deals with the dependence upon God that God's people are supposed to have. And it's interesting, I think. Uh, The idea of distinction is a lost virtue in many respects. People who want to be distinct usually try so hard to be distinct they end up looking like everybody else. And maybe the virtue of dependence isn't quite what it should be either. Uh, We live in a nation that thrives upon being independent. And when it comes to our relationship with God, that's not a good thing at all. And so we need to uh, look at the idea of both of them coming into play but we'll emphasize probably a little bit more the idea of dependence this morning. There used to be a word that was used in our vocabulary. The word was rad. When somebody was radically different from everybody else and what they did and how they did that, they were rad. You know, and and I, I think there's room for a little bit more of being rad. Even if we don't use the word, we still can use what the word carries with it. I know as we study in the Sermon on the Mount... That idea is definitely being pronounced and brought out by Jesus as he speaks to his disciples. And it's not only the idea of rad, but there's also a phrase that I used a few weeks ago in a sermon, counterculture. There's a counterculture. We're to go counter to what everything else this society and this culture has to offer and and to um, fulfill and fill up our lives with. The question, though, is are we willing to practice Being a rat? Are we willing to practice being distinct? Are we willing to to be the counterculture that God has called us to be? And it's not just a matter of uh, uh, saying some prayers and singing some songs, or or even you know wearing some kind of statement clothing. You know, we'll wear T-shirts and everything else that proclaim that we do have a faith. And it's not wrong to do that, but it has to come from something much deeper within us. Nehemiah chapter nine, chapter ten. I was going to do them as one lesson, but there's just so much there. I want, to, I want to divide them up because I want you to appreciate the prayer that led up to what they're going to do in chapter 10. And when we look in chapter 9 to uh, understand that prior to this, we talked about some of the spiritual insights they had, especially as they spent some time in God's Word. And then God's Word is going to have its reaction to them now as they, they pray and they confess to God. And then in turn what that's going to mean for them as far as their commitment and where that will lead them to. Nehemiah chapter 9 contains the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, but that's not what makes it significant. What makes it significant is it's prayed by a people who were prepared to pray in such a way that they were going to be different than what they had been before. And they had called themselves God's people before, but they hadn't lived up to that. The business, the commercial world, uses a declaration of distinctiveness as a proof of their product. That it's different from everybody else's. It's, it's their own. The declaration of independence talks about breaking away and, and being a people that uh, we're going to be different from all those others. But along the way, there has to be a distinctiveness that's marked by belonging to God. And not an independence, but a dependence that shows We are the people of God and follow him. And so I want to look at a couple of things this morning. Uh, The first thing I want to look at is a little bit of background as they prepare for this prayer. During the seventh month, these Israelite people had celebrated three very important aspects of their relationship to God. As far as worship was concerned, they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets and had all of their offerings to God. And then they would celebrate forgiveness as they had the Day of Atonement. And then they would celebrate their their trust in God and they would have a week-long feast of tabernacles. They would build their booths. After they dismantled their last of their booths, put them away, they met for another public assembly for a prayer. And Nehemiah tells us that on the 24th day of the month, they come together for fasting, penitence, meditation, and prayer. And the word of God is given a very special prominence in what they're doing. And we've already talked about that in a lesson past, but I I want to remind us again of that. The word of God is given the prominence so that it leads them to want to pray. And that in turn will lead them to want to make their their recommitment to God. The prayer here in chapter 9 flows very naturally from what's gone before, the focus on God's word, now to want to pray about that and then to want to go on from there. So this is going to be their response to him after they listen to the word of God. The sorrow for their sins, the great remembrance of God's grace toward them. And I want you to watch what they do as they prepare for the prayer. They held a six-hour church service, if you want to call it that. Can you imagine that? six hours listening to God's word, responding to God's word by confessing their sins and, and worshiping God. That's an absolutely incredible. It's a national day of prayer for them. Half the day is already gone, but they're going to spend a quarter of that day, three hours, listening to the scriptures. And the interesting thing is, the scriptures are all From their old law. And they're pretty much negative in what they say. It's reminding them of what they haven't done. And how they haven't lived up to what God wanted. And then they're going to spend another quarter of their day. Confessing their sins. That they were sinners. And that they were rebellious. And that they had done wrong. The passage Alan read a while ago from James chapter 1. James is saying that you know when you come to the word of God. You need to be a doer of the word. If you're not a doer of the the word, it's like looking into a mirror and you walk away and say, I forgot what I look like. There's also an implication that when you look into that mirror, it'll show you what you look like. But you need to pay attention to what's there. And chapter 9 shows us the impact of what the word had on their lives. The people are in in a very deep state of contrition. And they really want to do this praying. They had willfully disobeyed God's instructions. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, they had been told, when you come into the promised land, here's what you don't do. You don't intermarry and you don't blend with these peoples and everything that they had done. They had all those hundreds of years to keep themselves separate from everybody else and little by little by little they had finally blended in with them and even after they got into captivity they still kept blending. They had willfully disobeyed God's word. When you read Ezra chapters 8 through 10, you get the idea and and see how God is denouncing the moral carelessness, particularly of Israel's leaders, not setting the right example there. And so their, their national renewal results in a national prayer and this declaration of dependence and distinctiveness that they want to put before God. It's interesting to me that you can read through the Bible and you can find several prayers like this at certain intervals of the Israel's existence. Daniel chapter 9 for example is one where they're in captivity and they pray and they pray and pray. Finally Daniel's praying, boy we no wonder we're in captivity. And a couple of things always stand out to me when I think about these prayers. One is the detail and the sincerity that comes out. When they come to their senses it's Good night, how could we have done this before God? But the other thing is being disconcerted by the recurring pattern that seems to be there among God's people. And if we today, as God's people, had a problem in that area, we might want to pay attention here and realize, you know, there's some times when we need to come back and have some big public prayers of confession before God of our shortcomings. But I want you to notice As the people are led in prayer, their vision of God is enlarged. This prayer will teach, challenge, and encourage and stimulate the mind. It'll search the heart. It'll direct the will. It helps them and it helps us learn more about God and our relationship with him. And the prayer is a mosaic of biblical quotations. They took a lot of references from their their history and they uh, images from their history, and and they wove them together and channeled them into this this biblical prayer in their confession to God. And so uh, there there's scarcely a sentence that goes by where they're not displaying and talking about their debt to God and their need for dependence upon Him a very vivid and and, uh, detailed recalling of of God's love and his power among them and how they had failed him and how he had kept on loving them anyway. It's really a very, uh, very impressive prayer through there. It shows how God is constantly involved with them throughout their history. And you have to appreciate the fact that for Israel, their history was a very, very important thing to them. They, they really measured their lives literally by what had gone on in their history. God had guided them. God had corrected them. God had restored them. God had equipped them. And they, in turn, on a regular basis, they would rebel against God. They would be unbelieving. They would disobey. And they never lacked for anything. In fact, at one point there, the, in the Old Testament, they were told, you will lack for nothing. Your sandals won't even wear out. That's how gracious God was toward them. And so their prayer here shows a discernment of God's will and their disobedience. And and we don't have time to go all the way through the prayer. I I hope you had a chance to read through it this week with with the scripture readings and and the other things that were there. But if you read through and you notice, there's a focus on their reverence. Uh, When you look at verse 5, for example, it says, uh, Arise. Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Stand up and praise God is what it says. Think first about who God is. Think about the God who can hear, the God who pardons, the God who changes you, the God who blesses you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he talks about prayer will tell us, you know, the first thing out of your mouth when you pray is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy. And, th- and then to recount as you're leading into that prayer how God's name is holy and what that means. A man by the name of Thomas Brown says that the Bible urges us to think magnificently about God. I like that. Our God is an awesome God. Really? How awesome is he? Think about that. Talk about that. Reflect on that. You know, many of our human difficulties, I believe whether it's then or whether it's now, can be traced either to a a narrow, restricted doctrine of God or to a concept of God that's uh, thoroughly unrelated to what this life really is like. David Wells would call it the weightlessness of God, where God becomes either unimportant or marginalized in our thinking. It also, as you go through, look at this prayer, you can see how it... uh, There's a deepening of seeing their failures before God. They're not beating around the bush with anything here. It's a genuine confession of guilt. They are acutely aware and very conscious of how sinful they've been. Not only them, but their forefathers. It's a very sincere confession. You know, they have behaved and dressed in grief clothing. They come in sackcloth with dirt on it. And I think there's a reason why Nehemiah emphasized that, the way they dressed. Repeated disobedience, and in spite of continued blessing, you really need to show some humility here. You really need to show some, some contrition of that. They were a disobedient and forgetful people. Even though they'd been warned sufficiently by God, they would repeatedly disobey God. And they, would, they spelled out in this prayer how they had sinned against God. You know, we sing the song, you know, count your many blessings, name them one by one. When you confess to God, go through and count your sins and name them one by one. See what that does for you. You, you also get a chance to see and hear uh, the quality of suffering that they went through. Most of their troubles could be traced back to their own sinfulness. And yet there's the grace of God. And yet there's their sinfulness. They discovered the, uh, the best things about God often came when life was difficult and hard. And often life became difficult and hard because of the way they disobeyed God and forgot about him. What a strange cycle. And through troubles, we learn about our need for him. In unwelcome experiences, he, he sharpens our faith. And he improves our prayer life. And that's what they're doing. I, I kind of thought about Paul's comment in, in Romans as he anticipated and said, well, should we go ahead and continue to sin then the grace may abound? God forbid. That's not the thing. That's not what's being said. But when the sinfulness is there, do you understand that you have got a God who's willing to be gracious towards you? And so they're left with those spiritual illusions about spiritual superiority or their... Uh, Moral worthiness. They don't have any. And in their grief, they turn to God. And in their turning to God, they pray in such a way that you get new insights into God's generosity and their humility. So what I want to do now is is look at the prayer. There are four elements to this prayer, four segments. And I believe what they did in their prayer life will help your prayer life and help mine. And I would suggest to you, you know, preachers like to use, well, I want to challenge you. I don't like using that phrase too much, except now. I think there's a challenge for us to pray like this as a church, not just as individuals. Because I think there are times for churches when they've needed to pray this way. When you look in verses 5 and 6, you see adoration of God's name. You begin with praise, as I said before. Remember who you're talking to. There's no set formula for praying as such. And yet, Jesus teaches us start off with our Father who art in heaven. Holy, hallowed, is to be your name. I think that's hard for us for many reasons. I know in my own life, I I grew up not being taught how to pray on a regular basis, especially. Having only traditional formulas and, and phrases that were used and, and those passed for being prayers without really an understanding of what was being said. Over the years, I've, as a Christian, I've, I've listened to a lot of prayers. Some of them were worth listening to. Some of them I kind of questioned. But I didn't want to judge anybody's heart, just the basis of what I heard. In the Bible, it reminds us the best thing to do when you start praying is praise God. Praise him and praise him and praise him. Dwell on his character. It helps us to to better understand his name. It means uh, uh, the better we can praise him, the better we're going to be able to, to live before him. It's not a perfect solution, but it is a helpful one. Learn how to praise him more. Just praise his name. One of the things it reminds me of is uh, I think some of us are going to be shocked when we get to heaven to find out that uh, that's going to be our primary occupation, praising God. And if we're not prepared to do that here, what's it going to be like for us then? It helps us understand his nature. Nehemiah addresses him as being the eternal God. And we need to remember that. He's not a mere national deity. He's not a spiritual insurance policy. He's the eternal God. And to return back to this this land of theirs has been uh, an adventure in faith, to say the least. Back when they were in captivity, the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision. He's taken by God, and he's shown a valley of dry bones. And he's asked, son of man, can these bones live? Can they live? God can do that because he's the eternal God. He didn't just dump them in captivity and leave them. He's going to bring them back from captivity. And he's going to be with them throughout. He's the eternal God. It helps us to appreciate his uniqueness. Thou alone are the Lord. You know, uh, there are always challenges to God. What about your God? What's he like? Who is he? When you can go back to the scriptures and see in places like these prayers, this is what other people thought he was. Is that what you think he is? A a pick and mix religion isn't good for anybody. Concentrate on God. Focus on the only true God. It helps us see God as he displays his power. He's the creator and the sustainer. You know, one of the interesting things that that you see is when you go back and talk about understanding his name and you come back and look at the idea of God displaying his power, you see that in different places through the Old Testament, particularly the different names of God. I think it'd be good for us to do a study of the names of God because they tell us something about him. Who is your God? He's the God who sees, He's the God who provides. He's the God who protects. And there are different names for him throughout there. And in doing that, then, he has the power to provide those things. The second thing this prayer does is the affirmation of God's goodness. Cyril Barber once wrote and said, As we scan the highways of history, we find them strewn with the wreckage of those nations that forgot God. And that's what Israel had done. The next part of this prayer, you get to see that God had been good even when they had forgotten him. He always stayed God. In verses 7 through 15, he'll go through and talk about uh, their history all the way from Abraham uh, to the Red Sea. God who keeps his promises. And you'll see the word you repeated over and over. You, 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 speaking of God. He'll, He'll talk about how God acted in love and power. Not just for Israel, but for all humanity because of his love for people. He'll talk about how God unfolds his his will. The pagan gods will stay silent, but not our God. Our God speaks his will and stays true to his word. In verses 16 through 25, he'll talk about uh, going from the desert wanderings to the possession of the land. And look at how God demonstrates his mercy. Despite their tragically repeated sinfulness and rebellion, God shows his generosity, particularly in verses 19 through 25. Despite their being rebels, he never let them lack for anything. He stayed true to his promises. In verses 26 through 31, he'll talk about the time of the judges to the captivity. God patiently absorbed all of their constant disloyalty. He put up with them over and over and over. And finally, he gave them over to their enemies and gave them over to hardship so that he could bring them back and love them again. To help them come to their senses. And we see that throughout the Bible when God disciplines his people. He does that, the Hebrew writer says, because he loves his people. Paul points out uh, an occasion of that in 1 Corinthians and says, we're going to discipline the man so that we can save his soul. God doesn't punish to be mean. He does it to help. But that's a constant message throughout all the prophets. Look how how good God has been to you. Uh, Walter emphasized that over and over in his lessons in Habakkuk. Look how good God is. And there's a twofold purpose in showing them how good God is. Number one, it leaves them without excuse. You can't say, well, you know, God really wasn't that good here. Uh, Whenever God punishes you, you need to remember God's always been good to you as well. But it also reminded them that God wanted to be good to them again, despite what they had done. He never wants to quit being good. And the two things that stand out over and over are the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of his people. Watch the repetition of, God, you did this. You brought us out of the land. You gave us the law. You took care of us. You gave us the land. You were with us. You helped us. You provided. But we did evil. We became arrogant. We rebelled. We didn't obey your laws. But God, you stood by us. You returned to us. You treated us a lot better than we deserve. Interesting cycle. And as they prayed, they realized God had been active throughout their history. There was never a time when God wasn't active. You were good to us when we were good. You were good to us when we were bad. Throughout our history, you've always been faithful. And the third thing is, they acknowledged, or the acknowledgement of their sins. I do want to read verses 32 through 37 of Nehemiah 9. How therefore our God, the great, the mighty, And the awesome God, who does keep covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before thee. Which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all thy people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, thou art just in all that has come upon us, for thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept thy law or paid attention to thy commandments, to thy admonitions, which thou hast admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with thy great goodness, which thou didst give them, with a the broad and rich land, which thou didst set before them, did not serve thee or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which thou didst give to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty. Behold, we are slaves on it. And its abundant produce is for kings, whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies, over our cattle, as they please. So we are in great distress. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document, ...are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. They return from the heartaches of the past to the hardship of the present. And it's still difficult for them. But they realize the true source of all their distress, it was their doing. It was their sins. They had nobody to blame. It wasn't a matter of poor defenses. It was a matter of being sinners not being what God called them to be. You know, it would have been real easy to think, well, you know, we've been suffering, we've been made slaves, the kings are taking advantage of all this stuff, and it's because we didn't have the wall built, and, and we didn't have the temple built on the time frame that we should have. But that's not what he says. Lord, our problem wasn't the wall. Our problem was our sin. And I think there are times when we need to look around and understand that. Why do we have the problems in our lives that we do? people too often want to say, well, it's God's will that this happens to me. Now, it wasn't God's will. But you are maybe paying a price for sins that you've committed. To have the spirit that goes to God and says, God, my distress is not because life's been unfair. It's not because I don't have enough things. It's not because everything hasn't fallen into place the way that I hoped it would. Lord, my basic problem is me. That's my struggle. I need more humility. I don't need more money. I need more of your grace. I don't need more of my arrogance. I don't need more hedges built up to protect me from the evil And What I need to do is just follow you and trust you. And again, I go back to the idea. I wrote an article about this a few weeks ago, about the unforgivable sin. I still believe, in essence, the unforgivable sin is the sin you won't give to God to forgive. There's not a sin he won't forgive except the one you don't give him. And the fourth element was they agreed to renewed obedience. Verse 38 is just absolutely impressive. They agreed They agreed to be obedient again. The nation is saying, in essence, we need to write God a letter. We need to put down in writing how we're going to behave from now on. And we're going to talk about that next week in the lesson. You know... I think one of the reasons people don't like to fill out tithing cards and some of the other things is because it means commitment. It has nothing to do with whether or not it's scriptural. People just don't like to, you know, don't hold me to this. They're willing to be held to this. They're going to put it in writing. I think one of the finest documents ever written has to be the Declaration of Independence. It has to be so incredible. But I believe what happened in Nehemiah chapter 9 is even more significant, a declaration of dependence. It's the only time in history that a nation of leaders came together and said, we're going to sign a document that's going to say we're going to do right by God from now on. We're going to depend upon him. And don't you wish that just one time in the history of this nation, our leaders would come together together, and sign something that says we have to do right by God. It's never been done, and I don't believe it ever will be done. It's a question of how dependent you want to be upon God. They're going to tell him that from now on things are going to be different, and they're serious about it. I think one of the biggest problems among God's people is that we don't like to take God seriously enough except when we need physical healing. Listen to our prayers. Listen many times to what we don't say. How often we pray for the, the spiritual brokenness among us. How often we, we, we pray about the, uh, the moral laxity that goes on. That's the important thing. You know, if you go into eternity, maimed, broken arm, missing an eye, what, that's nothing. But if you go into eternity... Losing your soul. That's something very important. So they're telling God they mean business. God, here's the letter, and I'm going to sign it. I want you to know that I mean business. What if we wrote a letter to God as a church? Dear God, we've we've been short in not taking care of these things that you've commanded us to do in areas of evangelism, in areas of fellowship, in areas, you know, going all down through this. But we're going to change that and we're going to do something about it. And every member of this church signs their name to it and gives it to the elders to hold for us and held us all accountable for that. I wonder what that would be like. Nehemiah's leadership was not just in building walls. It was in building people and helping a nation to turn back to God. So we sing our songs about God's name, God's goodness, our obedience. Sometimes I wonder if we don't forget about some songs because we'd rather not be reminded of certain obligations. Let me give you three questions real quick and we'll close the lesson. Number one, do our prayers reflect adoration of God and challenge our irreverence? Sometimes we take God for granted. Sometimes we foolishly imagine that we can live the way we want to and we need to know better. Becoming morally selfish, spiritually careless, dismissing covenant obligations, it got Israel in trouble, and I believe it'll get us in trouble too. To be his people, we're to be holy because he's holy. Secondly, do we know how much sin and failure cripple and demoralize us? Look at all the opportunities we have to demonstrate love and holiness and, and commitment. I believe if you improve your vision of God, you will improve the quality of your life. And thirdly, do we realize how inadequate we are without God? There are always going to be new temptations in our lives. There are always going to be those things we struggle with. We need the moral strength. And God can change and transform even the most difficult-seeming circumstances for us by transforming us. And God delights in taking what seems to be weak and vulnerable people and providing them with all that they need. And so as I close, I would say this. The believers in Nehemiah's day were seeking confidence as they entered the future and the part that they would play in it. And they were confident God would do his part if they did their part. Their forefathers hadn't done all of their part, had let them down. But it's a moment now not just for a penitent prayer but a prayer that meant something and that would change them. And I think that's why we need to look at things. And we're going to look at that more in the next lesson. But maybe you need to look at what you've been praying for lately. Why you've been praying that. Have you disobeyed him? Have you been disloyal to him? Wouldn't you like to be back in God's good graces? Wouldn't you like to make that commitment And then just stand back and watch God bless you incredibly. If you'd like to do that, if we can help you in any way at all, would you come while we stand and while we sing?